Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear it now. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Have you ever been woken up out of a deep sleep in a way that you wouldn't have chosen to be woken up? I mean, it's one of those things that I think we typically think is hilarious when they happen to somebody else, right? But oftentimes when it happens to us, it's not so funny. I'm fortunate that I grew up exceptionally close with my cousins. I didn't have any siblings growing up, but I felt like I had brothers and sisters because our family is just so close. And one of them is only nine days older than me, and his brother is just a few years younger. So the three of us especially really got to grow up together. And that side of the family also shares a lake house up in North Alabama in Muscle Shoals. So I just have these fantastic memories of spending weekends at the lake with my cousins. One of those memories is when Preston, this is the one who's nine days older than me, fell asleep before his brother Robert and I did, his younger brother Robert and I did. And poor Preston, right? I mean, he didn't do a thing wrong. You know how this story's gonna go. He didn't do anything wrong. We had been on the water all day. He had been in the sun all day. We'd been getting pulled around on the tube all day. I mean, he was exhausted and he should have been, right? And if I remember correctly, I was in high school, I think a freshman or a sophomore, and it was the weekend right around the 4th of July that year, which meant we had a healthy supply of fireworks on, on hand. And I don't endorse this story. We don't have children's church today, so I know there's little ears listening. Don't do this, but it is a good story. That year we were particularly into, I think what they were called as little M5 fireworks, I think, but really simple, little, little tiny little firework, you light the fuse, you wait for a second, and they make a really loud bang. Well, I'm sure you know where this is going. Uh, Robert and I devised a plan to army crawl into Preston's room and place a plastic bowl as close to his head as we could possibly get it. And we propped up our flip phones in the corners to try and catch a pixelated video of, of whatever was going to happen when that firework went off. We lit the fuse, we dropped it into the bowl, and we got out of there as quickly as we could and shut the door and waited. And we heard the bang, and it was louder than expected. We both looked at each other like, oh no, what have we done? You know, it was, it was, one, of those, it was one of those moments. And uh, just a blood-curling scream from Preston 
Robert! I mean, he knew immediately, immediately who had done this. This wasn't his first rodeo, right? He knew that his little brother was the one to blame. I was the one that was the unlikely suspect. He ran out of that room, and I mean, you've seen somebody like this, blind with rage. I mean, literally, he forgot to put his glasses on, so he was stumbling around everywhere, but he was also just so angry, and Preston is also like two heads taller than us. So me and Robert are just running around the house trying to avoid this blind, angry ogre is what it felt like, that's trying to get his hands on us. And we just narrowly avoided him. It's a good story, right? We even managed to get back in the bedroom and get our phones before he could delete the video. And he finally decided to go back to sleep. And I remember sitting there with Robert. We must have watched that video 50 times that night. And we were crying. We were laughing so hard. And it was dark. We really couldn't even see anything, right? But just the fact that we had some evidence that we had done this to him was enough for us. I mean, surely you have a story like that, right? Where you are either the victim or the culprit. I mean, I can't help but think about in middle school when my dad would come in and wake me up for school singing Rise and Shine and stick his cold hands on my belly until I jumped out of bed, which is a worse nightmare for a groggy middle schooler. In a sense, in a sense, that is what is happening here at the beginning of Mark's gospel. In Matthew and in Luke, we get this nice on-ramp into the story of Jesus with the birth narratives. And if you think about John's gospel, we get this this intro that lives at a cosmic level, this, this prologue that eases us into the story of Jesus as we seek to understand who this promised one is and what he's going to do for us. In Mark, at least to me, we get jolted awake. Perhaps out of a deep sleep, like a splash of water on the face, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no birth narrative. There is no elegant prologue. We begin to read Mark, and suddenly we are off to the races. It has begun, Mark tells us. This is the beginning. Wake up, because everything is about to change. Mark's story of good news begins with a look back to the prophets of old. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. At the very onset, it's clear that in this new beginning that we are being woken up by, that God's long-standing promises are going to be fulfilled. I mean, I love how these first words make sure to connect the story of Jesus with the ongoing story of God. And it doesn't take long for us to learn from one of these prophets named Isaiah why we need to wake up. And it's because there is work to do. We need to get busy preparing for this this Messiah to arrive, for this Christ, for this promised one that we have been waiting for for so, so long. And lucky for us, Somebody's already working to that end, and his name is John. Spending a little bit of time with John the Baptist is something that just makes sense the first Sunday of Advent. Something that all of the Gospels agree on, at least in part, is that you can't get to Jesus without first hearing from or hearing about 
John the Baptist. For Mark here, he not only draws on the past when quoting Isaiah, but the story of this new beginning that he is launching into here is of a messenger who functions as a bridge between the past and the present. And it's not just what he says, it's also how he looks. John's camel hair clothes and his leather belt and his diet of locusts and wild honey would have been centuries out of style. So much so that the description of John the Baptist here and the one of the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings are nearly identical, which should send us a signal as the reader that John the Baptist and the prophet Isaiah not only had similar taste and fashion, but they're also going to engage in very similar work, preparing the way for the promised one to come. I mean, John is someone who is pointing to the future and yet is firmly grounded in the past, serving as a bridge for us. I mean, come on, John, John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. The same water that God's people crossed when they first entered the promised land on the heels of the Exodus, which in a sense was also the beginning of a story, the beginning of the story of the promised land. Do you see all of these connections that Mark is trying to get us to notice? Even the banks of the Jordan River notify us that this is fertile ground for something new to begin. That connection to the past is one of the major themes of this passage. And I think it's also one of the major themes of this season that we are beginning. And it seems to me, at least, that Mark does nearly everything in his power to make sure that we can't miss it. I mean, what is happening, while it is a new thing that God is doing, it is rooted deeply and firmly in the past. And it reflects more than anything else the faithfulness of God. This moment, this new beginning, this this new creation, this coming of the promised one, the Messiah, is God keeping God's promises to God's people. Bottom line for us today, what God is up to here is worth preparing for. Wake up, Mark says. It's time to prepare the way for the Lord. The question is how? How in the world do we prepare the way for the Messiah? How do we prepare the way for the promised one? How do we prepare the way for the Lord? I mean, typically when we prepare the way for important people, it tends to be a pretty big ordeal. The church that I worked at in seminary in Dallas was the church that George and Laura Bush attended. They only lived about 20 minutes away. So every Sunday morning in our pastor's meeting at 7 a.m., we would learn from our head of security if the president and his wife were going to be joining us for worship that morning or not. And if they were going to be there, you can imagine, right? It started this whole process of preparation in coordination with the local police department to make sure that we blocked off a certain entrance to the sanctuary so that they could enter so that the Secret Service would have what they needed to make sure that the church was prepared to host him for worship. In England, there was a running joke that the queen, no matter where she went, was always greeted first with the smell of fresh paint. 
Because folks had prepared the only way that they knew how for her arrival. Even preparing for my parents to come and visit my college dorm room was an ordeal. So how in the world are we supposed to prepare for the coming of the, of the Messiah? How are we supposed to prepare the way for the Lord, our Savior? I mean, you can see how a group of us stayed after worship to prepare last week. Maybe you've done something similar in, in your homes. We put up trees and we hung Christmas on, on the Christmas tree and we put up garlands and, and wreaths and nativity sets and lights. Maybe you too have already started buying gifts for your loved ones. We do a lot of preparing this time of year, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with all of that, with putting up decorations and buying gifts, but I think it's worth at least noting for us this morning that that is not how John prepares. According to John, it's, it's really not that complicated. It doesn't require a trip to the attic to grab that last box of Christmas ornaments. It doesn't look like scrolling endlessly on Amazon until we find the perfect gift for that special someone. Instead, John prepares by calling everyone that has ears to hear to repent. I mean, did you notice that, that of all the stuff that John could have been encouraging folks to do to prepare the way for the Lord, out of all of the possibilities, he is simply calling people to repent, to confess their sins. I mean, in essence, John is calling anyone to humble themselves before the Lord. And he even models this for us by making sure that we know who he isn't. According to John, he is not even worthy to bend down and untie the sandals of this one who is to come. I think where I found myself this week is, is here. I mean, what if, and hear me out on this, what if John is onto something here? What if the best way for us to prepare the way of the Lord, what if the best way for us to prepare our hearts for this new beginning that we believe is to come is to simply open ourselves up and be a people of repentance? I mean, John, the scripture says, is pulling the masses away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and the whole Judean countryside into the wilderness into the quiet, into the place that God's people have a long history of having to depend on God to lead them and guide them, so that perhaps for once they can sit still long enough to wrap their heads around what is about to happen. Perhaps realizing the only place to start with that process of preparation is to repent. I wonder what would happen, I wonder what would change if we did our best to do that same thing this season of Advent. If we sought to be a people who made an effort each and every day to find a quiet space to live into our baptism, to remember that we are forgiven and redeemed and to be a, pimp, a people of, of repentance. The good news with that is that if John is right, then preparing for Christ is something that anyone can do, no matter what your budget is for Christmas decorations. The bad news is that if John is right, then this is hard work. But I believe that this is hard work that is well worth it. 
Because this new beginning that Mark is kicking off for us here, this this new creation and the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that comes with it is something that we don't want to miss. Every year on the first Sunday of Advent, we are jolted awake to the dawn of a new day to realize anew that God is up to something new, something rooted in the past, something that has been promised for centuries, but that God is beginning a new story, a story that we know the ending of, a story that results in our redemption and in our forgiveness, a story that we are invited to be a part of by our own faith, a story that changed and continues to change everything, a story that we became a part of in the first place by reaching out to God's grace through a simple willingness to repent. So really, it only makes sense that the best way for us to prepare for this baby is perhaps through that same practice. Hear the voice of the prophet. Prepare the way of the Lord and repent. Because ready or not, thank goodness, Christ is on his way. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, my name is Ross Furio. I am one of the pastors here at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, and I am so glad that you joined us this week for our message. I want to remind you that if you ever want to join us in person for worship, we are here every Sunday morning. We have two worship services, both at 10 a.m. One is a modern worship service in the chapel. We call it the gathering, and the other is our traditional worship service in our main sanctuary. Again, both of those are at 10 every Sunday morning here on our campus. If you need us for any reason, I hope that you will jump on our website, www.bluffparkumc.org. You'll find ways to contact any of the pastors here on staff. We are here for you, here to walk with you through life and in any way that you might need support. We hope that you're going to have a great week and hopefully we'll see you soon.